I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts, and society. I'm Alan Rusbridger, I'm the editor of Prospect Magazine, and today I'm delighted to be joined by my predecessor, Tom Clark, who wrote a really interesting essay for the last issue of Prospect about the cost of leaving the EU. In his essay, Clark argues that the, quote, true economic reality of Brexit has long been clouded, including by the impact of COVID, but now the data is firming up and it's not good news. Welcome, Tom. And... You're speaking from Yorkshire. It's a nice view out here with some sheep. Probably a better view than the view that you know from this office. I have no sheep, but I do occasionally have grenadier guards, which is quite cheery. (laughs) A bit different, anyway. You you say what I think we know to be true, that it's been difficult to get a fix on what's happening with Brexit because of the pandemic and and the sort of inflation figures that are not unique to the UK. But tell us what is beginning to become apparent. Maybe you could start with the official trade figures. Yeah, as it happens, the trade figures are out again today. So it's probably the second set or something since I wrote that piece. And what what people who really, I mean, it is, as you've said, it's very hard to know what to pinpoint or to isolate the Brexit effect, because there's so many things that are changing. So for example, in the figures that are out today, for the first time, we're seeing the impact of the Russia's war on Ukraine in imports from Russia, and therefore in non-EU imports. So there's always other stuff kind of going on and COVID has been a bigger effect than anything else for the last couple of years. But if you try and compare what the trends are in terms of what's happening to trade with Europe as against trade with not with Europe, then you can see that trade with Europe appears to be somewhat down. There's a twist, which is it looks to be punishing people trying to import stuff from Europe a bit more than people trying to sell stuff into Europe. So imports from Europe look to be down relative to those from the rest of the world more than exports do. So there's that kind of bit of a twist which is worth pausing on. But overall, there is now enough data to say that trade with Europe is down somewhat. Another way of saying that would be to say the rest of the world since the middle of 2021 has been in something of a trade boom as trade is rocketing back up to make up for 
what happened during COVID, but the UK has lost out and it is not part of that trade boom because there's less cross-channel trade than you might otherwise have expected. So just pause there. You say somewhat. Can you put a figure on somewhat? I mean, it is hard um, because it all depends on what you're comparing things to. I think that people like Thomas Sampson, who's a great trade expert at the LSE, thinks it's fair to say that imports from Europe are now down by about a fifth or 20% compared to what they would have been in a non-Brexit world. But surprisingly, exports are not down very much on aggregate, which is a kind of mismatch that needs some explaining, but it might be possible to explain it if, for example, people who used to be selling um, Korean TVs or Bangladeshi T-shirts into a warehouse in Lille and then bringing them to the UK from there are now saying, well, we need different paperwork for Britain, so we're going to bring it straight to Britain. That might kind of reconcile a little bit why we're seeing this effect on imports from Europe, but not exports to Europe. How, how does the devaluation of the pound relative to the euro affect all this? Well, I mean, in general, the devaluation of the pound should make it easier for British firms to sell things overseas, both to Europe and further afield. Which may have some effect on, the, on those export figures. It might do, yes. It might soften the effect of the depression in exports that we're otherwise seeing. So we've had the pound sort of did go down pretty sharpish after the referendum in 2016 and I think never quite bounced back. And there's been downward pressure again more recently. So again, yes, that could be a way of explaining why the fall in exports isn't anything to compare with the figure in the downward pressure on imports. And and the promised sunlit uplands that we were promised that we were going to get a series of trade deals around the world and that was going to be really easy negotiation, that hasn't happened yet. No, well, not only has it not happened, but the people whose job it is to kind of put some numbers on how big these things are are saying the effect of trade deals with places like Australia will be really very small, you know, fractions small fractions of 1% of GDP. The a trade deal with America, if, if, we, if it were to ever happen, could be slightly bigger. But I think trade deals with anywhere else are kind of bound to be small compared to those with Europe. Just because, you know, it, 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 it's obviously there's transport costs as well as political costs and borders and things in, in, in trading. And transport costs are going to be higher if you go further away. So there are some people making some wild claims about how these, for example, I quote in the piece, a guy called Patrick Minford, who's a well-known, you know, ultra free markets, laissez-faire economist, who's been pretty open throughout the Brexit process that the great appeal of Brexit for him is it will allow us to do things like shut down all our inefficient manufacturing and farming sectors and just buy loads of cheap stuff from wherever it's cheaper and then with the money that we've saved, maybe invest it in doing something more useful. So he's a kind of full-on scorched-earth creative destruction man. And he says, you know, that you might be able to get big effects from some of these trade deals if you let in so much cheap foreign goods that you close down most of British farms and a large part of British industry. Um, But the government certainly doesn't want to have any projections that could allow people 
to make that charge of it that it's planning to close down you know huge parts of what's left of the manufacturing and farming sector so the government is much much more uh, cautious and everyone who's being in any way cautious about this is saying it's going to be pretty small what about the data on services well services are even harder uh, to measure because they're hard things to to count with a factory you can kind of put what comes you can have someone counting how many widgets come out but with a management consultancy service you know in a way you see the price and you don't necessarily see a great deal else now i've seen some people some reputable people put out figures saying that there isn't an effect on service trade in the same way that there has been on goods but the one study i looked to in detail for the article said that at least in the big sectors that are most important to the British economy, so professional services and finance, we're again seeing a big depression in terms of cross-channel trade as opposed to trade with the wider world. So if you look at it in that way, then you can say that Britain is selling less to the rest of the world than it otherwise would be. Now, as soon as you like say instead of comparing our different markets you say let's compare what we were selling before with what we're selling afterwards then it gets more complicated because for example during the last three years you've seen the crushing of free hong kong and so some finance work that might have been taking place in hong kong is now going to be coming to the city of london which is why i think the best thing to do is to compare what are we able to sell to europe compared with what we're able to sell to the rest of the world and at least in professional service and in finance then you're definitely seeing a hit so I mean if you put it all together you can say trading relationships trading contracts are often written for a period of of years there are as you've mentioned potentially offsetting factors around the currency there's these kind of wrinkles in the way the data is collected on imports vis-a-vis exports but if you put it all together trade with Europe is down in goods by 10 plus percent relative to what it would have been the big sectors of the service sector look to be down as well the people like the government's own analysts at the office for budget responsibility are saying nothing they've seen has put them off their original expectation which was that total trade would end up about 15% lower than it otherwise would have been without Brexit and without the hard form of Brexit we ended up with. And you sort of see something of the order of, you know, 10 or 15% affecting the, I don't know, third or whatever it is of the economy that's traded. That's what we're on course for. We're not all the way there yet because these trading relationships take time. Uh, It's not the case that that 10 or 15% of that third is all going to be destroyed some of it be substituted in stuff being made in the UK instead but on any conventional economics it's going to be less efficiently produced if we're trying to do it here instead of trying to do it further afield and so you know we are going to be all else being equal a, a bit poorer than we would have been it's starting to become pretty plain and you can see it in for example, the figures since I wrote the article, the OECD's put out stuff uh, saying that next year 
the UK is second bottom in the growth league compared to Russia, with no growth expected at all in the UK next year. Um, uh, you can see in today's, as it happens, there's some GDP figures out today on the day we're speaking, which say that you know uh, GDP's edged down a little bit, and there are some pretty miserable forecasts from the IMF for the UK next year as well. Now, again, there's always more things going on, and we will have people say, well, hold on a minute, you're highlighting the figures for 2023, but in 2024, the UK is due to have got that set of problems behind it, and it's going to catch up a little bit. And of course, there are always other things going on, but um, I don't know, it just starts to feel a bit like at some point it's going to be pretty obvious that you're in denial, if you, given how fuzzy the longer-term forecasts are. When I was interested in the in the Times. I think it was last Thursday. Ian Martin, who who's a columnist who was pro Brexit, um, wrote a column. His first column I've really read like it, saying that it, actually we have to start admitting that some things have not gone as well as we uh, wanted. He talks about the nine percent devaluation of the pound since June two thousand and sixteen. No valuations for British companies, squeezed profits, made it more difficult to raise capital to invest. His figure for exports to the EU in 2021 down 12% on 2018. Uh, UK exports to the rest of the world fell by about half that. And a prediction from the city broker IG saying exports to the EU may fall by another 8% Eight percent by 2025. So that, that, that do you get a sense that that even the people who were pro Brexit are now beginning to admit that things haven't quite happened in the way that they promised us. I think probably people who follow the business news carefully and maybe starting to do that. There's certainly, you pick up bits of talk around the edges of the Tory party and the Tory, Tory business community in particular about, you know, could we edge back to something like, you know, customs union membership or single market uh, membership? Because, you know, it's, it's off, off the table to talk about rejoining the EU. Um, but I think that they're very, they're very worried that that would be a politically a very difficult thing to do. So, so the kind of thing you could imagine happening is a series of sector by sector agreements, almost to uh, get rid of some of the barriers to trade that would, you know, in an unspoken way, replicate the effects of the single market or the customs union for the sectors that are having the biggest. Um, uh, impact uh, where, where we're seeing the biggest impact, but it would have to and be me, done. Me, in... me, I mean, meanwhile, um, and again, this hasn't been widely written about. I think uh, Amsterdam. This is in your piece. Amsterdam's overtaken London as the prime site for share trading. Uh, how, how important is that? I think probably that itself isn't so important. And it's in the last year or two since the last eighteen months since we left the single market. The share trading thing has bobbed back a bit, uh, back and forward, I think. Uh, but the bigger thing is really whether that massive agglomeration of skill that makes London, the City of London, a kind of world centre for final financial services will very steadily kind of erode. And I spoke to Nicolas Veron, who is a great kind of expert on finance matters, and he was saying, you know, 2021 
which was actually a boom year in finance because we had the pandemic and then we had all the quantitative easing and the kind of made up money flushing into the markets. So there was a lot of money to be made in the markets in 2021. And there was also, as I alluded to briefly before, you know, some opportunities coming London's way because of Hong Kong. But even so, he was saying in most of the offices he spoke to, there were there was a sense that there were more good people leaving than arriving. Uh, and um, a bit of a conspiracy of silence. Because if you're a border straddling bank, it's not like Britain's not a tiny place. Like if it was just, if we were only talking about New Zealand or something, then like... Uh, you might pull out wholesale if you were a big international bank. But, you know, Britain's still, still not a nothing economy, and so you're going to want to keep an office here. If you want to make it a bit smaller but continue to trade here and, like, ramp up your office in Amsterdam or Frankfurt or whatever, it's not really in your interest as a globe-trotting bank to have any kind of row about that. So you just sort of downplay it and keep quiet and gradually grow the one thing and gradually shrink the other. Can you talk us through the trends for total business investment? Yes, Alan, I can gladly talk you through what's going on with business investment. Just before that, I'd like to take a step back and say, naturally, we've been talking here first and foremost about the really big picture uh, items, which is you know total trade, total service trade, total GDP. And total trade, total GDP, these are the things that are really confounded by counterfactuals and what's your base year and what's the... Uh, what's the kind of uh, comparison whereas with total business investment and some stuff on small business that I can come on to we don't need any of that because it's just down it's really markedly down and if you look at a graph of it it was growing steadily between the financial crisis when we recovered from that about 2010 and 2016 and then the Uh, sorry then we had the Brexit referendum and from steady growth we suddenly moved to a flatlining position Uh, and then obviously it dived with Covid like business did everywhere and then it kind of bounced back and then it's flatlined again so what this means putting all that together is it's down by about I don't know 10% since the Brexit referendum but if you compare it instead to what it would have been business investment had just continued to go up then it's down by something like I don't know 20% plus it's really down. For how long do you think this becomes a subject that is almost impossible to discuss in British politics at the moment there's almost a conspiracy between the two parties that no one wants to reopen the 2016 referendum result and therefore it's in no one's interests to look like they're bad losing Ramonas. Well, I think if you look over history, then the idea of kind of economic rationality on the one hand and kind of political pride on the other, you, you, you can't assume that rationality is always going to win out. So we shouldn't be totally surprised. We should also be kind of mindful of the fact that, you know, the Remain camp got two big things wrong. First of all, it kind of... Uh, went very hard on the idea there was going to be an extraordinary um, recession the day after uh, a Brexit vote out. And, you know, this was going to be a kind of sudden big bang rather than a kind of wheeze into a slightly more pathetic um, uh, economic position. Uh, And so it's all deniable for that part of the population that 
wants to deny it. And also, I think the Remain camp got something wrong, which was, you know, it was always 50-50 how many people wanted to do Brexit or not. And sometimes it would kind of go down to being like 55 against 45 in favour of Brexit. But what I think, uh, you know, those, you know, even those of us, I could say, on the on the Remain side didn't understand is that even though people weren't particularly in love the, with the idea of Brexit, the majority of people weren't particularly sold on it. They didn't like the idea of the Remain camp being bad losers and trying to reverse something that they'd said in advance they'd adhere to. And so those are the obstacles to getting it back on the agenda. How that plays out is different on the on the Labour side and the Conservative side, because the Conservative rank and file and half the Conservative Parliamentary Party really believes in Brexit on a kind of nationalist uh, belief that it's going to somehow pay some sort of dividends in the end, even if we can't see what they are yet, that it will allow us to sweep red tape out of the way and that will be more important than any any trade effect. And I think there it's going to take a very long time uh, because, you know, we tried having a Remainer with Theresa May in charge um, like trying to do our best with Brexit and in the end it kind of collapsed under lack of coherence um, and I suspect the next leader of the Conservative Party will be a Brexiteer as well which means they're not going to be straightforward about the failings. On the Labour side it's a bit different kind of Labour was sort of going along with it yeah we've got to respect the vote and then like as you know momentum got behind opposing the May government and uh, like the idea that it was possible to thwart its big programme and isn't this Brexit business a, a terrible business anyway? Labour kind of got itself into the position of let's have a new referendum and you could see what that happened at the time in December 2019 but then when that crashed and burned at the general election that year it became a kind of party taboo. It was just like this is something we can say in elections but if we do we'll lose. So Keir Starmer who was right at the forefront personally of attempts to say Labour would have a so-called people's vote to reverse the 2016 referendum, now says there's no case for rejoining either the single market or the European Union as a whole. So he's got obstacles, you know, he's already ticked and tacked all over the place, but is currently in the position, I think, of believing that the so-called Red Wall would never forgive him if he now went back to a Remain position. But I think the public might end up ahead of the politicians or of the Labour politicians on this because, like I say, for most people, Brexit wasn't, even in the Red Wall, isn't something they were completely committed to. If people know someone in a small business that's like struggling badly with the paperwork of selling things abroad, if they're seeing inflation in our country after this devaluation is a bit higher than inflation everywhere else, if they're seeing that the investment isn't there to create the new jobs, then, you know, you'd have thought at some point the reality would have some power with with the swing voters. So, I mean, I think it will become possible. I think there'll be a delicate dance where we don't just go straight back saying let's rejoin the European Union, but maybe looking at these sector by sector agreements will be the first step. But it might take a change of personnel in both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party till we get there. In the, the issue of prospects, which is out on Thursday, Sam Friedman begins his political column by quoting a, a YouGov poll in May that found just 17% were prepared to say that Brexit was going well. Um, the question, uh, were we 
wrong to re leave the EU. Uh, um, 49 to 39 now think that we were wrong. And should we rejoin 55 to 45, say yes, we would choose to rejoin if we could do so on the same terms, which of course is uh, doubtful. So it does feel as though that uh, together, or maybe that's being driven by the, the, the economic position that you're analyzing in your essay. And as you say, the lived experience of people, and I mean, in the Times this morning, we're reading about farmers just plowing their crops back into the ground because there's no one to pick them. Um, so, I mean, just ending by looking forward, do you see any grounds for economic hope? Again, uh, Andrew Neil, interviewing David Davis at the weekend, asked him if he could name any benefits, and he said, well, ask me in a year's time. Uh, do you think it's going to get better in a year also? No, I mean, I think that can be as confident of anything in uh, economics that the economy is going to get worse in the next year just because we've got so many hideous problems coming and hitting us now, uh, like in terms of, you know, both inflation, which is still on the rise right now, and in terms of the recession, which I suspect, you know, the forecast, forecasters always kind of lag the change in mood, you know, because they're always kind of looking at a graph of what's happened in the past and running a ruler through it and saying, well, this is what next year is going to be like. So they're always playing catch up. And but if you look at the indicators of sentiment, whether it's consumers or businesses, they're, they're dreadful. And I spoke to someone very eminent in the economics world on, on, on Friday night and they said to me they're as confident as they could have ever been in a 40 or 50 year career that there's going to be a re recession next year. So. In terms of what Britain's going to be like next year, it's going to it's going to be um, miserable and and, and uh, hard up, and that's going to be the the feeling. But the politics of it could be a bit different. Um, in that, um, you know, the question is whether the Brexit side is able to kind of style what's going on as in somehow being the responsibility, the fault of the Europeans for putting pesky trade barriers in the way and obviously there's Russia and there's other things going on that are, are, are real uh, problems for which we in the UK are not to blame but you know when when, when the chips are down um, it, it might be quite easy to whip up a bit of um, uh, anger uh, against the European Union and that could complicate the kind of the sort of sensible politics that you're talking about there. I mean, at the moment, despite all these warning signs on trade, despite the dire clear conclusion on investment, despite the horror stories from many independent um, small businesses, we've got the government at the moment, as we're speaking, preparing legislation that allows it to kind of rewrite the terms uh, of the deal with Northern, uh, concerning Northern Ireland unilaterally without involving um, the European Union, which, you know, could be the start for a trade war with Europe, which would, um, you know, magnify everything we're talking about by several fold. Um, uh, so why are they doing that? It doesn't make any sense from the point of view of economic rationality, but it does make sense from the point of view of ensuring that um, someone across the water rather than someone in London is taking the blame for what's going on. And I, I you know, I just wouldn't want to um uh kind of assume that the kind of you know <laughs> benign and sensible politics is gonna win out over the um 
sinister and scheming one. It might do, but I, d I don't think it's certain. I should say, by the way, that we've seen in the last week as well some other official statistics saying Northern Ireland locked into the single market is the only part of the UK um, uh, other than London that's been having a relatively good period in, in, in the last um, period, despite the promise that, you know, we'd break free and then the north of England and the Midlands would level up. They're sinking down, whereas London's doing OK, as it tends to do in Northern Ireland over there in the single market on its own. Um, for the moment, it's doing well, but that could change if this politics gets out of hand. Thank you so much, Tom, for joining us from Yorkshire. And go back to admiring your lovely view. Thank you all very much for tuning in to hear our discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of our new issue of Prospect Magazine, which is on sale on Thursday, or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. In the current issue, you've got four days in which to buy that, but you'll find it online. Tom's essay, along with a very thought-provoking piece about the future of the internet, and in next month's issue, the July issue, a very long and thorough piece uh, about the coming food crisis, just to cheer ourselves up even more after listening to Tom's unremitting bad news. <laughs> Goodbye, stay safe, and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.